0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 11. Uh, Genesis chapter 11 for our time of study in the Word this morning. By the way, I need the clicker. Um, We are doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of uh, Genesis, and as we continue in our study this morning, we come to Genesis chapter 11, verse uh, 10, and our goal this morning is to cover verses 10 through 32 and make our way all the way to the end of, of the chapter. And um, I had a... Thank you so much. I didn't know it was over there. Um, I, there's a title that is on your insert, and we're going to change that title. I think it says, uh, Abraham's father... On your in your bulletin insert, but we're going to entitle the message "Tara, the Settler." Tara, the settler. Tara was Abraham's father, and we're going to call him a settler today. I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's a a a series of commercials on uh, TV lately that feature a family called the Settlers. How many of you have seen that commercial? Uh, They live in modern-day America in a neighborhood that looks very much like the neighborhoods that you and I live in, yet they live as people lived in pre-industrial times, and they also have cable TV, go figure, Um, which is so much more primitive than direct TV, that's the point of the commercial. But they are okay with just having cable because they are settlers, you know. And one of the commercials features the man's wife approaching him uh, one day while he is cobbling or repairing a shoe in his house, and she humbly asks, Dear, why don't we switch to direct TV? The man responds by saying, Now, Mother, we are settlers. I have settled for cable all my life, he says. But, she politely pleads, Direct TV has been number one in customer satisfaction over cable for 15 years. He replies by saying, we find our satisfaction elsewhere. He points to his children, his son and his daughter who are playing. And he says, the boy has his stick and hoop and the girl has her faceless doll. Then he turns his head toward a large pile of cabbages and says to his wife, and you have your cabbage. Amazingly, this line of reasoning seems to resonate with her, encouraged by these reminders of all of the wonderful things that they have. The wife smiles at her husband with satisfaction and contentment and says, and you have your foot stomping. And he says, I sure do, while he stomps his foot and slaps his thigh in a hoedown sort of way. Um, The point of the commercial is to show the silliness of settling, when in fact there is something so much better available. Whenever I see that commercial, I always laugh, but then sometimes after and while I am laughing, I'm left asking myself if I too am a settler in ways that I should not be. If you're here today and you do not have salvation through Jesus Christ You are a settler. And my message to you is don't be a settler. Switch your allegiance over to Jesus Christ and call upon him to be your Lord and Savior. Why would you want to live another day apart from Jesus Christ when you can have the forgiveness of sins and everything else that Jesus gives to you and is purchased through his shed blood? But I also know that we as Christians including myself, can be settlers too. Christ has given to us all that we need for life and godliness. He has given us power to, to walk in freedom from sin, to walk in community with others, to walk and to live in relationship with him, to enjoy his word, to enjoy the privileges of communing with him in prayer. He has prepared good works for us to walk in so that we can experience the joy of being engaged in good works that will bless others and glorify God and enable us to bear fruit for eternity. And yet, we often settle for living apart from the enjoyment of such things and we settle for living for our puny selves and living in sin. We settle for living in locations that are somewhere short of the fullness of all that God calls us to be and to do and all that he has provided for us. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, says it this way, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's counterintuitive. We think people are too difficult to please, but he says actually, when you look at what you settle for, instead of experiencing the fullness of joy that is yours in Christ, you're actually far too easily pleased. That's his way of saying that we are settlers. We're far too content to settle for something short of what God wants for us and calls us into. And I, I wonder if the same thing could be said of Tara, um, who is Abraham's father, who we're going to be studying in our passage today. Terah shows some promise in the passage we'll be looking at today. He's got some advantages that are in his favor. He seems to start off well and with the right intentions, yet he ends up, in the end, becoming a settler who settled and died somewhere short of the destination that he had initially, by God's leading, set out for in our passage today, we see the name Terah ten times, establishing him clearly as the main character of this section of Genesis 11. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to learn about Terah. We're going to observe five facts about Terah, the settler. Just a quick review, though. Keep in mind that Genesis 11, 1 through 9, that we studied a few weeks ago, tells us the story of the Tower of Babel, the people of the world... Uh, had settled in the land of Shinar after the flood and attempted to build a city and a tower that would reach into the heavens. Their goal was to make a name for themselves and prevent themselves from being scattered over the face of the earth. God sees what they're doing, and he isn't just concerned about what they're doing in the moment, but he's concerned about what all it will lead to. So God confounds their languages, and through that means... He scatters them abroad through the face of the earth. And it is here that the narrative of Genesis 11, verse 10, picks up. And so let me read this passage to you. Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem, who was the son of Noah. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And by the way, this is the last mention of the flood in the book of Genesis. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpakshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Reu. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Reu, and he had other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and became the father of Sirug. And Reu lived... 207 years after he became the father of Sirug, and he had other sons and daughters. Sirug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sirug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of... Of his father Terah, in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Isca. Sarai was barren; she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son. And Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran." This is the word of God, and may God help us to understand his word to us today. As I said a few minutes ago, we're going to observe five facts about Terah, the settler. Five facts about Terah, Abraham's uh, father. The first fact that we can observe in this passage is that Terah was a descendant of Shem. He was a descendant of Shem. Uh, This point is clearly established in the genealogy that we see in verses 10 through 25. Here we see the genealogical chain from Shem to Abraham uh, and to Terah and then to Abram. Uh, Shem is the son of Noah. And then we've read all of the names that show the link demonstrating conclusively that Terah was a son or a descendant of, of Shem. As for the genealogy itself that we just read, this genealogy is similar in some ways to the genealogy that we studied in Genesis chapter 5. What is similar is that it is a chrono genealogy and that it gives the age of each man when he became the father of the son who gets mentioned. This genealogy is also similar to the one in Genesis 5 and that it tells us how long each father lived after the birth of his son and it also tells us that he had other sons and daughters. That much is similar to the genealogy of Genesis 5. But there are some uh, some differences that we can note uh, between these two genealogies. Uh, first of all, this genealogy does not bother to give us the combined total of years that the father lived, uh, telling us how many before the child was born, after, and then giving us the grand total. The genealogy in Genesis 5 did that. With the exception of Terah, this genealogy does not do that uh, for us. This genealogy also does not feature the repeated refrain, "'And he died.'" You guys remember that when we were in Genesis 5? I think it was eight times where we read the words, and he died. But we don't see that here, except with Tara at the very end. It's for this reason that some commentators suggest that this genealogy is less pessimistic than the one in Genesis 5, inasmuch as it features a greater emphasis on life rather than the repeated refrain that these patriarchs died another difference is the shorter lifespans of the men in this genealogy it's evident from the numbers that are given here that man's lifespan on this side of the flood is now getting shorter than it was before the flood Noah himself lived 950 years but in this genealogy you see kind of a gradual descent in the number of years that each of these men uh, lived. Uh, Arpachshad lived 438, Shem lived 600, Arpachshad lived 438, Sheila lived 433, Eber 464, Peleg 239, Reu 239, Serag 230, Nahor 148, and Terah. Uh, The text that we all have says 205. The Samaritan copy of this particular book of the Bible, very ancient, actually has Tara dying at the age of 145. That may actually be the accurate reading. We don't know that, but we'll just go with the 205 that is listed here. Very clearly, conditions on earth on this side of the flood and at work in the human body are such that um, lifespans are shortening gradually over time. God's decree earlier in Genesis chapter 6 that man's life would be limited uh, to a maximum of 120 years seems to be gradually coming to pass, and this is all the result of sin. So all in all, Terah has the advantage of being a descendant of Shem who actually was the most blessed of Noah's sons. If you read Noah's last will and testament at the end of Genesis chapter 9, you see that Shem is the most blessed of Noah's three sons. It would be through Shem that the Messiah would come. So he's a descendant of Shem. Terah would also have the benefit of seeing the effects of sin and shortening people's lifespans on this side of the flood. This should have been instructive for him and caused him to follow God. There's something else we learn about Terah in this passage, and this leads to the next fact that we can learn about him, and that is that Terah had three sons who married. Terah had three sons who married. Uh, Having children changes you. Having children often has the effect of changing a person's outlook and making them more serious about life and about God and about spiritual things, more in tune to the hurts of this world, the sorrows of this world. And Tara had, we know, at least three sons just from this passage alone. Observe what the text says, beginning... And verse 26, it says, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And the text continues, verse 27, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Lot is a character that we're going to get acquainted with soon enough. For now, it's enough to know that Lot is the son of Abram's brother, Haran. It is not specifically stated that Haran got married in this passage, but we can presume that he did and that he bore Lot through his wife. But at some point after Lot was born, something tragic happened. Verse 28 tells us this, that Haran died in the presence of of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Literally, the Hebrew just simply means he died before Terah, before his father Terah. All this has to mean is that he died before his father died, but it could also mean what some of our translations say, that he died in the presence of his father or before the face of his father. So it could be saying that Terah was present when his son died. His son may have died in his arms or uh, Terah was beholding his son and with his son when he died. All in all, we don't know how Haran died, but we know that Terah, who was Abraham's father, had to deal with the heartache of seeing one of his sons die before his time, leaving Terah's grandson, Lot, without a dad. This tragedy, no doubt, shook Terah to his core, as we can imagine. Some commentators suggest that it may have fed into the decisions that Terah is going to be making in the coming verses as this passage unfolds. As for Terah's two other sons, observe what the text says. Verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name Sarai means princess or queen. Her name is going to change to Sarah in Genesis 17, verse 15. Nothing is said here about who Sarah's parents were, but later Revelation, interestingly enough, gives us some idea as to who at least uh, her father was. You guys know in Genesis 20, Abraham lies to Abimelech and tells him, that Sarah is his sister Uh, in order to conceal the fact that Sarah was his wife. And when Abraham is caught in that lie, he does kind of defend himself a little bit. He provides some defense of himself in Genesis 20, verse 12, by saying this. He says, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father. That's Tara, but not the daughter of my mother, so what does that tell us about Terah? It tells us that Terah had another wife or a concubine of some sort through whom he had Sarai. So just through that, we can piece together some information about Terah. About As for Terah's son, Nahor, he got married also. In verse 29, the text says, And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. The daughter of Haran, you want to note that, the father of Milcah and Iscah. This means that Nahor actually married his niece, whose name was Milcah. Perhaps he married her after his uh, brother, um, Haran, died. Uh, the mention of Milcah and Iscah tells us that Haran had at least three children before he died. Lot, Milcah, and Now the information that Moses gives us here about Nahor and Milcah is relevant to the Israelites who would be reading this or having this read to them. Because in Genesis chapter 24, you might want to write this reference down, verse 15, it will be told that a certain Rebekah was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor whom Abraham's son Isaac is going to marry. In other words, Abraham's son Isaac will marry the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. Does that make sense? I'm feeling like it's complicated up here. I hope it's clear (laughs) to you. Uh, Later in the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 22, verses 20 through 24, we learn that Nahor had 12 sons, through his wife, Milcah, and also through a concubine. Uh, By the way, when you have that many sons, you kind of run out of names, leaving you with names like Uz and Buzz, (laughs) uh, which he named two of his sons. Um, And I I know exactly what they look like. Um, But anyway, seriously, in a lot of ways, most people would have uh, picked Nahor to be the son of promise given how many children he is having and especially given what is said in verse 30 about Abram's wife, Sarai. In verse 30, the text gives us one detail about her and it states this detail emphatically. Verse 30, it says, Sarai was barren. She had no child. So while Nahor and his wife, Milcah, are, and his concubine are having 12 sons and no doubt daughters as well. Abram and Sarai are having no children at all. Yet Abram is the one that God is going to choose to be the father of many nations. So Terah has three sons. One of them dies. Another seems to be getting along just fine and having children and building his family, and another one, Abram, is married to a wife who is unable to have children. Now, observe what happens next. We will see that Terah and his family live in Ur of the Chaldeans, but in verse 31, they make a big move. This brings us to the next fact that we learn about Abraham's father, Terah, and that is he took his family and left his homeland for Canaan. He took his family and he left his homeland for Canaan. In verse 31, the text says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. Now, if this passage is all that we had to go on here is what we know. Terah, for some reason, felt compelled to make a big move and to launch out from Ur of the Chaldeans. And he felt compelled to take some of his family with him. Based on the language here, Terah is viewed as the one who's taking the initiative. He took Abram and others. He wants to leave his hometown and he's not content to leave alone alone. He takes his family with him. He wants his family to go with him where he is going. Interestingly, though, in the middle of the verse, the language shifts, and the text uh, literally says, they went out with them, rather than he went out with them, with his family members. The fact that in the Hebrew text, there's the word they saying they went out with them almost certainly indicates that it is Terah and Abram who are the two principal actors here, and they are taking Sarai and Lot with them as they leave Ur toward Canaan. Why did they leave Ur? The text tells us that they went out with them from Ur, and here's their goal. Here's the destination in mind in order to enter the land of Canaan. The language here makes it clear that Terah's intention in leaving Ur is for the purpose of entering Canaan. To end up in Canaan is the stated goal of this move. By the way, archaeological discoveries show that the city of Ur that they are leaving here was truly a great city from a worldly standpoint. It had everything that anyone would want. As one writer says, Ur was a great city with a high civilization, including a great library, even before Abraham's time, but it was also a very idolatrous and wicked city. Evidence also shows that Ur was a major center for the worship of the moon god and that the city was dominated by a massive three-stage tower that was devoted to the worship of the moon god. Evidence also indicates that the worship of the moon god involved human sacrifice in all of its awfulness as its worshipers would worship the moon god and other deities there. In fact, many commentators point out that the name uh, Terra is akin to the word Yera, which is the word for moon. Sarai is close to the Akkadian word Sharatu, which is the female partner of the moon god, and some suggest that's why Sarah was named Sarai. And the name Milka is essentially the same as the name of the goddess Malkatu, who was believed to be the daughter of the moon god. These names probably indicate a culture that is awash in the worship of the moon god, thoroughly infecting this family. Now you say, well, Terah was an idolater. Well, we actually know that he was at some point in his life. Uh, Because in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, listen to what Joshua says to the children of Israel in that passage. He says to them, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river. Speaking of the, hang on, I'm lost here. Did I pass it up? There we are. Okay. Uh, From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, which is speaking of the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So very clearly, this statement is being made that Terah was an idolater at some point when he was living beyond the river. So Terah is an idolater, yet for some reason he gathers up his family and leaves this idolatrous and moon-worshipping city, and he travels in the direction of Canaan with the hope of getting out of Ur and getting into Canaan. There's a hint in the passage with the word they went out with them that Abram is something of a co-actor in this move, but that's as far as the text goes. We're left without any indication of what would have prompted this huge move. But fortunately, other scriptures give us a deeper understanding of what is happening here in our passage today, letting us know that God was involved in this. God was the cause of the move. In fact, in Genesis fifteen seven, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So we know with certainty that God was involved in initiating their departure from Ur, but how did he do that? Well, fortunately, we have inspired commentary in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin and he gives this perspective as to why Terah was leaving Ur with his family and wanting to go into the land of Canaan. Listen to what Stephen says. He says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's Ur of the Chaldeans. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans. Now, based on what Stephen is saying, let's let's say it this way. Genesis 11 tells us that Terah left Ur of the Chaldeans and took Abraham and his other family members with him. Acts 7 lets us in on the fact that the catalyst for this move was that God had actually appeared to Terah's son, Abram, and told him to leave his home country and to come into the land of that God would show him. According to Stephen, it was after that appearance of God to Abram, after this call was delivered, that Abram left the land of the Chaldeans with his family. Evidently, God appears to Abram and gives him this call to leave his homeland. Abraham shares this call with his Father, Terah, and Terah says, you know what? You should obey this call, and I want to go with you. In fact, I will lead the expedition to Canaan. As one writer says, God's initial revelation of himself to Abram was of such a powerful and convincing nature that Terah was not only persuaded to join the pilgrimage, but actually took the lead. Terah's initiative here shows a significant level of respect for the true God and for how God had led his son, Abram. You say, wait a minute, God doesn't call Abram until chapter 12. That's the next chapter. Actually, the call of God upon Abram in Genesis chapter 12 is the call upon Abram to move from Haran to Canaan. Genesis 12 is essentially the 2.0 version of God's call Upon Abraham, it's a restatement of the earlier call that is not recorded that God would have delivered in his appearance to Abram when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. So we know that Terah was at least an idolater at some point prior to God appearing to Abraham back in Ur. Perhaps his worship of other gods persisted, but it seems safe to assume that what happened to Abram served as something of a turning point in Terah's life. It caused him to get up and to leave the idolatrous city of Ur with the goal of entering Canaan. That's a big deal. And it seems like this tells us something good about Terah. It's interesting to note that the text does not tell us that Terah took his son Nahor with him. He just took Abram and Sarah and Lot. It seems that Nahor stayed behind And later passages in Genesis make that clear. So Terah and his family make this move in response to revelation from God. Their goal is to leave Ur and to end their journey by entering into the land of Canaan. And so they travel toward Canaan. And in their travels, they get as far as the city of Haran. And it is here that they do something interesting. And this brings us to the fourth fact about Terah that we observe in this passage and that is he got as far as Haran and settled there. He got as far as Haran and settled there. That's my creative wording to reflect the wording of the text which says they went as far as Haran and settled there. If you look at a map, you will notice that Haran is north of the land of Canaan, which might cause you to wonder how in the world would Terah, if he really wanted to go to Canaan, would end up there. But it actually makes sense when you consider the fact that Terah and his family would have likely followed the curve of the Fertile Crescent in their travels, which would have taken them precisely on a route that would easily run through the city of Haran. If they made a straight path from Ur to the land of Canaan, it would take them through desert. And most people did not make that kind of journey. So they um, took the loop of the fertile crescent in their travels, and they came to the city of Haran. Apparently, after arriving in Haran, Terah took a liking to the city and decided to settle there. Haran was a wonderfully strategic city located on an important trade route in that part of the world. There was much to commend the city uh, such that Terah decided to stay in Haran and to give up his dream of going to Canaan. Maybe his initial thought was, I'll just stay here for a couple weeks. But day led on to day and week led on to week and months to years, and Terra ended up settling permanently in Haran. Archaeological evidence reveals that Haran, get this guys, was another major center for the worship of the moon god, who was the chief deity of the city of Haran back in this day. So perhaps that was the biggest attraction that caused Terra to settle in Haran. Joshua, in the passage I quoted from Joshua 24, uh, tells the Israelites that Terah worshipped idols beyond the river. Uh, Keep in mind that Haran is still beyond the river, speaking of the Euphrates River from the vantage point of the promised land. So it's quite possible that Terah is still an idolater in Haran. As one writer suggests, it's possible that Terah did not successfully carry through the break with idolatry as it was practiced in these lands. Another writer suggests that Abraham, uh, after God spoke and appeared to Abraham, that Abram convinced Terah to leave with him. But when they got to Haran, another center of moon worship, Terah would not budge. We don't know for sure that this was the cause of Terah staying, but it's a solid speculation. What we do know, though, is from the language of our passage here in Genesis 11, that Terah initially intended to go to Canaan. That's clear in the passage, but he ended up settling in Haran, which was somewhere short of where he had originally intended to go. And we know, guys, that this is true enough to human nature. We often set out to achieve some good and godly goal that God has led us to, to move towards, but we get distracted from that goal and we end up settling for something less than what we know God is calling us to. We're often too content to exist in a settled-for existence rather than walking in the fullness of God's best. For whatever reason, Terah's New Year's resolution, as it were, was to go to Canaan, but he never kept that resolution because he got sidetracked. And the same thing happens in my life and in all of our lives. As Matthew Henry says, many, many reach Haran and yet fall short of Canaan. There's a positive and a negative here to ponder for a minute or so. The negative is that Terah and perhaps Abram with him is falling short of what God wanted for him at this point in time and his family is affected by that. The positive is that Terah obeyed God's call to leave his homeland. That's huge. And another positive is that Terah did get a little bit over halfway To the land of Canaan. Though he came short of his goal, he was farther along than he would have been had he never left Ur in the first place and set out for Canaan. In the next chapter, we're going to see that Abraham leaves Haran and sets out for Canaan, and his journey from Haran to Canaan is much shorter than it would have been from Ur to Canaan. Sometimes it happens that the full journey to God's best does not happen in one generation. Sometimes it takes two generations. And Tara at least maybe deserves some credit for at least getting Abraham half of the way toward the goal. Just as a parent, I found myself thinking about this, and I would ask you this question, parents. What will God in some future day call your children to do? Where will he call them to go? And what are you doing in this day and this generation to take them with you as far as you can so that their journey to where God calls them to go is as short as possible? Think about this also. Terah settles for half the distance to Canaan. And as the story unfolds in the book of Genesis we see Abraham having a tendency to settle for half measures also. Twice, he settles for just speaking half-truth to kings in order to protect his hide. And on one occasion, he has sexual relations with his wife's handmaiden in order to help God fulfill his promise. And yeah, it's not exactly what God had promised, but it's halfway there. It involves a child being born to me, Abraham, even though it's not involving my wife. That's half of what God wanted, right? And so this tendency to settle for half measures, we actually see in Abraham, we see actually in his father, Terah. Leading me to say, parents, be forewarned that your tendencies toward compromise... Your half measures will be highly contagious to your children. Anyway, the passage tells us that Terah settles in Haran. What happens next? This brings us to one final fact about Terah that we will observe in this passage, and that is he died in Haran. He died in Haran. It says the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. This is a big deal. In Genesis 5, we see the refrain, and he died eight times. Here in this genealogy, this is the one and only time that we see these words, and it feels like a downer, and I think that's intentional. What's unique is that Moses adds the little phrase telling us that he died in Haran. And none of the references to someone dying in the genealogy of Genesis 5 is the location of their death ever stated, but it's stated here. Moses, the writer of this, really wants us to know where it was that Terah died. He didn't die in the land of Canaan, which was the original target destination. Terah died in Haran, which was somewhere short of the goal the original goal based on revelation from God that he had set out for by the way when you run the math you realize that Terah settled in Haran for at least a few decades this was not some brief stopover during which you know he happened to die, it didn't say he was on his way to Canaan and he died, no he settled and then he died and he was there for quite some time and in the end it turns out that Terah died where he settled Perhaps when he first stopped in Haran, he figured he would eventually pack up and continue on toward Canaan, but he never did. He died where he settled. Think about, the next, think about that the next time you wish to settle someplace short of where you know that God wants you to be. Wherever you're thinking about settling for a little while, ask yourself the question, would I want to die here? Would I want to die here? And if you wouldn't want to die there, don't settle there, even for a minute. Just wrapping things up this morning, this passage sets us up beautifully. It sets the stage for us to pick up with the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. We've learned a lot about Abraham's background as we've studied his father in this passage today. And we'll pick up next week in Genesis 12. But our focus today is on Tara. And I have to confess to you that I see myself in this passage in unfortunate ways. And I am benefited by the reminder that is here of the dangers of settling. Sometimes we choose to settle in locations that are somewhere shy of where we know God wants us to be. And when we settle, we don't plan to stay there forever. We don't want to spend the rest of our life there. We just want to settle for a little while and enjoy this place that is less than God's best. And then maybe we'll pick up and we'll surely journey on later. Maybe we settle into a relationship that we know is wrong, but we think this won't be permanent. I'll just enjoy this for a little while and then, and then I'll move on. I'll walk, I'll walk on at some later point. Maybe it's a sinful habit, and our thought is, I won't engage in this for the rest of my life. I'll just behave this way now, but one day I'll move on. I'll I'll change my ways. When I get married, I won't do this kind of thing anymore. Maybe it's bitterness. We think, I won't be bitter for the rest of my life, but for right now, I'm going to settle here and savor my anger in my bitterness for now, today at least. But one day, one day, one day soon, I'll get up and I'll, I'll move on from my bitterness. We comfort ourselves in the thought that we won't stay in such places permanently. But day leads on to day, and week leads on to week, and year leads on to year. And before we know it, we are in a rut that we cannot imagine getting out of. And we look back and we realize that we have become settlers and too much of our life got spent dwelling in places that were somewhere short of what God had called us to. We started well with God. God genuinely worked in our life and we launched with excitement. We took some good steps in the right direction toward where God had called us to go, but we're not finishing well. And guys, just just mark my words, Satan is going to do everything he can in your life and in my life to keep us from leaving our former life and heading to the place where God is calling us to go. But if he cannot succeed in keeping you from making that journey, he will do all that he can to get you to settle for halfway, to stop. Just, you know what? Tomorrow, you can continue on. Just settle here for today, for this week. You can move on later. But day leads on to day, and week leads on to week. And our life, too much of our life, gets spent in places where we should not be. And so I ask you this morning, are you settling in places where you know that you should not be? Husbands, are you the husband you should be, or are you content to just be half the husband you should be? Well, I'm better than some. Wives, I'm asking you the same question. Are you the wife that you should be? Are you doing what you should be doing toward your husband? Are you content to just be doing half of what you're supposed to do or even less than half? Are you a settler? Are you settling in places where you know you should not be? And have you, looking back, have you been settling in those places for longer than you anticipated? Some of you are stuck. And some places that you thought you were just stopping by and you'd be moving on. And it's been years and you're still stuck. And you're settling. And if you are settling, it's time to pack up and, and pick up the journey to those places where you know that God wants you to be. And to start doing those things that you know God wants you to do. And I urge you, don't wait until tomorrow. Pack up and leave those places you've been settling today and journey on. And you know what, guys, here's some motivation for you. In Jesus Christ, you have a savior who left his homeland, which is heaven, and he obeyed his father's call to launch from heaven to leave his heavenly home and to come to earth to be your savior. And you know what? Jesus didn't just start off well. He ended well. He didn't just settle at some halfway point on his journey, but he went the full distance all the way to the cross And to glory in a way, Jesus did halt in the garden of Gethsemane for an agonizing season of prayer. He recoiled from the idea of the cross and experiencing God's wrath on that cross. But after praying, sweating, as it were, drops of blood, he pressed on and he went all the way to the cross and through the cross to glory. And those of us in this room who are believers in Jesus and who enjoy the forgiveness of sins through him, we are daily the beneficiaries of a savior who did exactly what his father called him to do. And he never let himself be sidetracked or sidelined or to settle anywhere short of that goal. He never let himself settle for partial obedience Had Jesus done all the many righteous, wonderful things he did throughout his life and ministry, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he decided, I've done enough. I'm going to stop here. All of us in this room would be bound for eternity in hell without remedy. Jesus was not a settler. And that's why you don't have to be either. Let's pray together. Lord, you speak to us through your word. Your spirit is at work in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the convicting work of your spirit. That conviction is, is actually a sign of life. If anyone in this room is feeling any conviction, And feeling challenged and feeling the weight of that. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them with the thought that that's a sign of life. That you're working in their life. And that you've not abandoned them. I'm encouraged in the thought that even though Abraham settled with his father in Haran. God, you were faithful to speak to him in Haran once again. And say, get up and go. Get up and go. And you speak to us today in our places of settling and you say to us, get up and go to the places where I have called you to be. Stop being a settler. Help us, Lord, to walk in fullness, to pursue full obedience and not halfway measures and half obedience Half-truths, partaking of half of what you want for us. Help us, Lord, to gorge upon all that you have provided for us in Christ. To feast and to go the full distance toward the places that you have called us to. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you this morning. Receive these funds and do much with every penny that is given for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray and all God's people said. Amen.